This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and that means you're listening to another episode of the Crowncast. And it's a Wednesday Crowncast, and we know you're here for all the talk about Lionel Messi. That's what everybody wants to know. It's what everybody's here for. It's what the internet wants. It's what all the the podcasts want to talk about, and we're going to talk about it too because Lionel Messi is coming to the MLS. And uh, I'm not doing it alone. I am here with Ewan. Hello, Ewan. Hello. You know, Ewan, just off the top of my head here, is there a place that if people want to see the stuff that that you do out there, do you have a, a place people can follow you? <laughs> uh, yes. Obviously, we've got the uh, the website that we uh, that we plug. Um, mm-hmm. Crowdcast is that uh, you'll? I think you've got that off the top of your head, haven't you? The uh, the, the link for that. Yep. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the crowncast.net. And obviously, uh, if anyone's on Twitter, they can follow me at stillness underscore, underscore speed. Stillness underscore speed. Awesome. Uh, you know, you, you come on here so so many times now and you've become a regular, uh, you know, full functioning member of the podcast. I think it, it's fair that if people want to go out and engage with you, they should have they should be able to find you and by all means, go support you. And uh, we are going to talk very briefly about the fact that we played philly and then we're going to talk slightly more extended on the fact that we played uh columbus and then we're going to talk for 40 to 50 minutes about the fact that Lionel messi uh signed some things and uh those numbers probably aren't true but we're leaving the messy stuff until the end so you have to to stick with us uh or you can just hit fast forward i mean whatever you want to do uh, do you want to start on the the Philly game, or should I should I come out with my desire to talk about DJ? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always happy to hear someone uh, talk positively about about DJ. Um, <laughs> you DJ, know, that's uh, that's one of my guys. Yeah, DJ has. I have come around on DJ really fast, and uh, the reason for me, I think, is Ashley Westwood. And I'm, I'm going to go into this just a little bit because we do have a lot to get to today and I don't want to get too bogged down on a game that happened two games ago. But DJ always struck me as someone who had a significant challenge in front of him. And he was always someone who struck me as had a superpower. But he was always a guy who I felt like you'd have to build around his superpower. And I did not think that was realistically achievable in the MLS. Enter Ashley Westwood. And Ashley and DJ are peanut butter and jelly. They are other things that go together. Well, my brain is blanking on them. Please forgive me. Uh, The ability to move around the midfield and create offensive threat to create short passes, to create ways to get the ball out of pressure that Ashley Westwood brings. And then the threat he has potentially over the top, the ability to hit, you know, sort of creative balls, the ability to play out on the wings when he needs to spread the pitch wide out on the wings. It allows Derek Jones to take up and and own more space in that defensive midfield with, you know, potentially Brandt still running around up and down the sort of box-to-box role. I saw something that if you listen to the post-react, you will you'll hear this be a bit of a repeat. I saw something from Derek Jones that essentially just took away my worries about his passing concerns. And that is against Columbus, or not against Columbus, against Philly. He just decided not to pass the ball. 
he would get the ball. He would do his usual thing where he stepped in at a good time to inter- to interrupt, you know, an offensive move by Philly. He would get his foot on the ball. No one could take the ball off of him. And instead of him looking for a pass, he just ran up the field until it was open. And we talked about this again in the post react. So if you really want to go hard on, on how this is special, you can go listen to my response in the post react, but I went back and I watched some of it and it's exactly what it looked like to me. He just, instead of him putting his head up and looking to try and pass the ball through two players to someone who is wider open, he just uses his size to move into a space where the pass is easier for him to take. And it worked brilliantly. Part of the reason it worked so brilliantly is Ashley Westwood is a very capable player when it comes to finding that space to get open, right? Ashley will be there. And Ashley is the type of player who will look ahead and say, he might not be able to get the ball to me here, but I know what he can do. And he will move to the best possible position instantly in order to support that midfield and in order to turn that transition into an attack. I really like what I saw in that Philly game from DJ and from Ashley. I liked what I saw out of the wings. And I think there's some stuff that we can potentially talk about on the wings as well. But you brought this up, Ewan. So I feel like I should give you credit. A month ago, our first podcast, we had some real serious talks about Christian Lazanzio. I mean, we had some, hey, are we starting to fall off the fence on this guy and saying maybe this isn't the right guy for the future of the club. We do get some good results in a row, but we also get some good performances out of bad results. And up into the Philly game, there was actually a lot of positivity about Josh and I, and there might be a way that I am seeing Latanzio ball potentially come into fruition here in Charlotte. But I think a lot of it rests on DJ's shoulders. Ewan, sort of thoughts on DJ in the midfield and, and what you saw against this this Philly team? Yeah, I think, um, and, and I'll try to talk about this without touching too much on the Columbus game, because um, obviously he wasn't uh, starting that game. But mm-hmm. yeah, DJ is someone who... I think was a little bit like you weren't alone in, in not kind of liking him as a player so much because a lot of it is not so easy on the eye <laughs> when he's on the ball. He's not uh, he's not exactly an aesthetically pleasing player. And from a midfielder where you associate it with so many different types of player, you don't exactly think that you're going to like a midfielder who one of his uh, attributes is or one of his weaknesses is, oh, you don't want him to be passing the ball. It doesn't exactly speak uh, (laughs) glowingly of a midfield player. But I think for this team, especially, there is... his, His profile is kind of perfect for what we need him to do, whereby when we play with inverted fullbacks and when we play with midfielders looking to get up the field Bronico Westwood when when DJ's in there uh, holding for those guys we need players who can cover a large amount of space or in this case we need a player who can cover a large amount of space and we need someone who can cover a large amount of space in wide areas for those inverted fullbacks kind of covering those uh, positions of the pitch on a counter he is essentially in the team the reason we can play the way we do because he is the transition stopper um and again, not trying to touch too much on the 
Columbus game. But that's why when you see him outside the team, you kind of see those moments happen a lot more. Um, and there are moments where you maybe think, oh, there's no one really to blame. It's just kind of a, a, a team thing, a system thing, which it is. But that's why Derek Jones is so important because when we play the system, you need the guy with, like you say, that superpower to be able to cover those areas. On top of the fact that he isn't great passing the ball, um, but what this team emphasizes, what Latanzio emphasizes is ball retention. Mm-hmm. And we see it. And we had it confirmed from uh, Ben Bender <laughs> that he yep. is not someone that you can easily get the ball off. He is somewhere. He's someone where if he gets the ball in an awkward position or if he gets the ball uh, kind of not perfectly to feet how he'd want, he's able to either kind of wriggle out of it or is either to either able to kind of, you know, get a foul. Um, he's brilliant at that ball retention stuff, that, that idea of getting a restart in different in difficult situations, the idea of kind of holding onto the ball, maybe not progressing it and it not being an obviously great pass, but, you know, just getting it back to his fullback, getting it back to his centre-back. Let's restart. Let's go again. He's brilliant at that stuff. And I mean, I know, it probably, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it probably hurt Latanzio a lot to have to give him that rest, but that's why he held off it for so long <laughs> because because he is that essential to the way he wants this team to play. Like you say, that that system that you're gaining more and more belief in, he is really integral to, and that is coming out more and more in these last few weeks. So I, I think the way that I want to phrase this and this has just come to me. So if it sounds terrible, congratulations, everyone. You get this as, as it, we're doing it live, right? Um, I regularly use the term going fishing for that player in the line whose job is to go cut things out, whose job is to go take a little bit of risk in order to cut out passes, in order to stop transition balls, in order to, to go and create for their team, win back possession, regain, retain, right? I, I think I'm going to say Derek Jones is MLS's fisherman. He's the ultimate fisherman. And like a fisherman casting the fish back into the water, uh, it's not it's not always a smooth process, right? Fish are floppy. So he's really good at getting the fish. Uh, controlling the fish on the line, great. When he then has to throw the fish back, it doesn't always look so good but genuinely the amount of space he is capable of holding it it is starting to amaze me and especially with what i think we should probably come to once we get to the columbus game the fact that some of the other pieces around him are not quite so good at picking up this same slack picking up the same ability uh it it shows more and more i want to talk about the wings really really quickly and then we'll move on uh, because we do lose the Philly game one or zero one to a header that rebounds off a bar and hits Christian Kalina in the back and rolls in. Uh, there's not a lot of fault to be given there. Uh, certainly not, I think, to Christian Kalina. I, I'm starting to re fall in love with Kerwin Vargas, and we've said it so many times on this podcast. Everybody's better on the left. Right, That was our motto for like a year. Everyone's better on the left. Kerwin Vargas, better on the left. Kamal Yushviak, better on the left. Uh, Andre Shinyashiki, better on the left. Didn't matter. Uh, me, better on the left. Right? We have now seen Justin Miram come in. And he's playing that, that wide left in a way that is forcing attention to the left. 
You can't leave Justin Miram's technical quality alone. He will put a good cross in. And he's had a couple games where he's kind of been off his crossing structure, but he is good enough to make three. If you give him the starting space, he is good enough to make a dangerous ball in to a team that has some ability to go after dangerous balls. Um, you know, Enzo Capetti's not fit right now, but you know, Agumong is not a small guy. And Carroll has shown that he can get on the the other side of of some in balls. So he has created a system where that left side can't be ignored. Right? They can't leave that completely alone. And it's creating a little bit more space for our right, where we're starting to get duels. We're starting to get wingers. We're starting to get Kamil when he's healthy. Although, uh, you know, the longer he stays out, the more concerns I have. We're starting to get Kamil when he's healthy, having the chance to take on a duel, having the chance to run at a guy. We're starting to get uh, Kerwin Vargas, who has a sort of shimmy shake in the Philly game. I believe it's the Philly game that I wish I could put sort of side by side with the video of. Uh, Bukayo Saka from the Premier League, because I think you would be able to see really, really clearly the difference between someone who is truly elite on both feet and someone who's learning how to be a, a dangerous on both feet. If you look at the video of Bukayo Saka, it's one touch shimmy out to space, immediate shot curling into the back post. And if you look at the video of Kerwin Vargas, the move is very similar it's sort of a run run in, pin your defender back, get him on his back feet, shift to the left, onto your left foot, and try and fire a curling ball into that back post. It's a beautiful thing, and the moment a winger has it in their locker, they are 100 times more dangerous. It's the same shot we saw uh, Brandon Cambridge score for his both first and second goals in his brace. Right, That ability to get back on your left from the right wing, pin your defender, and fire to that far post is deadly. People all across the world have made their names on it. And if we are starting to get multiple wingers who not only have the speed to be effective, the pace to pin their defenders, the ability to shoot off both feet, and the ability to push down the line and put in a good cross or push down the line with speed and pick out that that next ball, that drop ball back, the game Christian Latanzio wants to play suddenly starts to look doable. A couple of key pieces, DJ coming in and being given that role, Ashley Westwood being that, that floating commander in the middle of the field who can go wide if need be, who can come inside, looking at a couple of young wingers, who are starting to produce threat and option and a real, a real sort of piece of guile and experience out on that left. And I'm starting to see how this can come together under the, what Christian Latanzio wants to play. You in, are you seeing what I'm seeing here? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think on the points specifically about Vargas, playing where he is obviously played most of his football so far for Charlotte on the left now on the right I think that is something that's really important to point out in the context of our overall tactics um because one of the things that I've talked about before is byline threat the idea that if you're if you have inv- like 
the most um, conventional byline threat is that the winger has a ball, has the ball, and the fullbacks are overlapping. That's the most standard byline threat you can get in football. Um, mm-hmm. And when fullbacks invert, that's that's off the table, really. Yeah. So there's almost an extra emphasis placed on you need your wingers to be able to go to the byline. You need your wingers, if they're playing on the right, to have a good right foot. Um, and on the left, we have Justin Merrim, who has a lot of quality, but as a left-sided player, very right foot dominant, always looking to get onto that right foot. Yep. Vargas, on the other hand, you, you're seeing multiple um, good crosses into the box with his right foot. And like you mentioned there, seeing moments where he's getting onto his left foot and you know looking looking pretty capable with it as well. So it's this dual threat, can go inside, but also has his strong foot as an outside byline threat player. And on top of that, having a player playing conventional uh, on their conventional wing, as in right-footed on the right wing, it's just able to space out the field a little bit and create space for, in this case, would be... Ashley Westwood a lot of the time who gets into those areas very often and he's someone who has real quality in in terms of being able to deliver the ball into the box we haven't seen that a lot yet I'm kind of I'm basing a lot of that off the stuff that I watched of him at Burnley that's that's one of the areas where he can really really affect a game um obviously a little bit different with Burnley in the fact that anyone who knows about Burnley from the Premier League big strong team big strong players coming in to uh, attack the ball in the air. In our case, we have uh, Carl Svodersky and Enzo Capetti, who are both good in the air, but mm-hmm. good, good good in the air for their size. They're both yeah. um, not, you know, not small strikers, but, you know, not exactly like pump it into the box and, and, and get, get them working in the air type players. Um, so I think Vargas on the right, and I wonder if this is something that was, and again, we, we won't know this for sure. I wonder if this is something that they have figured out themselves in terms of okay we need to space out the pitch a little bit more and help our midfielders get that little bit of space especially Westwood to be able to use his technical quality on top of the fact that we need that byline threat because we are wedded to this idea of inverting our fullbacks I don't know if this is is something that they've come across uh, come up with due to that or this is something that has maybe been stumbled upon due to winger availability the -hmm. fact that we have so many wingers out injured and it's just ended up being, well, Merrim has to play on the left and Vargas is the other healthy winger. So you're going to have to go on the right. <laughs> and suddenly this is all happening. It's like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe we can now see the benefits of playing with a conventional sided winger. You know, it creates space. They're able to get the ball in the box, you know, get to the byline, create space itself, cutbacks, everything like that. So my big question with this is the question off of that question is this something that they have figured out themselves tactics-wise and they'll be sticking with it? Whether that means we will see Josviak playing on the right when he is healthy again, um, or, whether, or, or really whether it be him or Vargas. Like they, there's a, will, uh, will there be an emphasis on having a right-footed player on the right if Merrim is always going to be on the left? Or is it something that they're just kind of working through now because of injuries and when Josviak is back and when everyone is back healthy, they get back to the idea of playing with a lot of winger inversion. That That's a big question for me, whether this is just the happenings of, of, of winger health 
or whether this is something that they've actually figured out and are willing to stick with, because I hope it is something that they stick with. And I imagine from what you're saying, you would agree with that. Yeah, well, I think that whether they've stumbled onto it or whether it was always the hope and for the sake of just sort of giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to say it was always the hope, right? It doesn't cost me anything to to give people the benefit of the doubt here. I do think there's a world where Kerwin Vargas gets the skill on the right and sort of understudies that far side from, uh, uh, help me, I've lost his name. I've said it a hundred times on the left. Uh, Wait, it's not Merrim, is it? Merrim, thank you. Hey, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not like I don't spend almost every single day researching and studying this stuff, and it's amazing. I still get tongue-tied sometimes. Uh, Vargas could go and sort of understudy Merrim, at which point in time, if we can get Kamil back in health, we have a set of wingers that I think, if you look at the sort of traditional system, and we are into the weeds here we're kind of going to be overlapping what we saw out of uh columbus as well here if we get into the system which which is sort of the five and five the five people sort of holding a defensive unit and the five people going up and making an offensive high press unit the pieces are in place and i see them all theoretically functioning right in that sort of high press five unit, you want someone who's got either a really, really high engine in the central attacking position, in the striker position, or you want somebody who is really strong on the ball and difficult to muscle off. We have both of those two players. We have Carol Swiderski, who's willing to drop in and bring defenses with him so that those two wingers can, can gain more space. And we have Enzo Capetti, somebody who can potentially sit up there and and cause havoc and turn people and create a little bit more over-the-top threat. One of the key pieces that you would need in that is you would need a creative attacking midfielder who is good at connecting in triangles and very good at playing in tight spaces, who is also capable of going and creating... Uh, actual danger to the goal, not just assists, who's somebody who's going to be able to score five, six goals a season, um, maybe even more, right? We have seen Ashley Westwood fill this role, and he started shooting. Look at how Ashley Westwood has started playing. When he is getting the chance to see the back of the net, he is not holding back. He is taking a shot. I think that's instructive. I think that they think Ashley can do that. And if he can come forward and do that, he can help fill another one of those attacking lanes, especially in that sort of second wave of attack, right? What do you need out of that other attacking midfielder? You need someone who can support the play and cover holes with a heck of an engine. And then you need someone who's got the legs and the running power to get back and help on defense as quickly as possible. That is Brant Bronico to a T, right? We have that guy. Brant Bronico can shoot. Brant Bronico can get in the box and cause cause trouble, cause chaos, get goals. We've seen it, right? Brent Bronico, if his position holds well, can be the guy who uses his engine to get back and support that ball over the top. That front five, I am suddenly a lot less worried about. The back five still really concerns me. And I think that that will be one of the great challenges of Christian Latanzio because if he can't sort out that back, that sort of five and five system, 
and continues to try and play it, we are going to continue to see games like Columbus, which I think we should sort of get into now. Ewan, we get absolutely torn apart kind of at Columbus, and it happens really early. You want to talk to me about about how this gets off on the wrong foot? Yeah, yeah. This, um, well, the first goal is obviously, it's it, it's an obvious error from Bill uh, Tui Loma. <laughs> uh, something that has become a little bit common, um, a bit of a common theme so far this season, the idea that he seems pretty solid, goes kind of under the radar, um, you know, Clears ball, wins his headers, da, da, da. lots of standard defensive stuff. But he's fairly good value for quite a bad error. <laughs> every every kind of three games. Um, and I've watched this, uh, I've obviously watched this back a few times um, to try and figure out, you know, what he was trying to do with the pass. And I'm like, you know, the, the debate was, you know, is he trying to pass it into uh, Harrison Offal in the in the in his inverted role or is he trying to uh, pass it to Sobashinsky? I'm like 99% sure he's trying to pass it to Sobashinsky because that is where his eyes are at the point of the pass and that is where his eyes are as the ball is moving towards. I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't 100% aware that Harrison Offal is even right there in that space even though he is the guy who <laughs> ends up kind of having the better chance of of getting on the ball or, or, or forcing a tackle and stopping that. Um, so that, I suppose there's not too much to say about that other than it is a really, really awful error. Um, the maybe more interesting part is the Kalina thing. The idea that maybe he should be more attentive in a sweeper role to be able to clear that ball once the main error has happened um, and that touch goes through to the forward. Should he be there? Should he be standing a little bit further off his line originally? Um, and that's the main thing for me. Should he be further out of his goal originally? Because we have the ball. We are in a build-up phase. There's no real reason in my uh, in my mind that he has to be as far back as he is. I think you ideally want your goalkeeper playing a little bit higher in those areas to, you know, to 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 help deal with those problems. Yeah, exactly. To to be an option, even and this doesn't even have to mean that you're some great goalkeeper on the ball this just means like if if you're in a tough area i'm here and i'll just you know worst comes to worst i'll kick the ball forward and we'll you know we'll get a restart we'll we'll challenge for a header or anything like that it's that combined with the fact that i mean we talk about rest defense a lot but now we're almost talking about <laughs> um, rest goalkeeping to borrow a phrase that doesn't exactly <laughs> translate correctly um, rest goalkeeping defense yeah, yeah exactly exactly i'm butchering the uh the original kind of German translation of what rest defense means, but hopefully that isn't too uh, too annoying to anyone. <laughs> but you know yeah, my, my German is really quite bad, so you're not offending me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully that's how everyone feels on this one. So uh, yeah, rest goalkeeper defense on this one was a bit of an issue in my um, in, in kind of my analysis of this, and I don't want this to come across as I'm on this like streak of oh Kalina is is not very good and you know you want him replaced I think it's it's as much a coaching thing as it is a Kalina thing that's why I say you don't have to be some great sweeper keeper some great distributive uh distributive goalkeeper to be able to be in that right position you need a coach to say to you right in these situations where we have the ball and we're quite high we need you to stand 10 yards further up to be able to bail out 
either the player on the ball in these situations and offer as a passing uh, option. And if you're further out of your goal, if a touch like that happens, a through ball, you're there to to make the tackle and and you know sweep you know, sweep up the danger. Because if we lose the ball, the touch is fine, and it ends up being a one on one. It's not like you're left without enough time to kind of backtrack and get into the position you want to be for a one on one, which would yeah. be, I imagine, the the theoretical counterpoint to this, that idea of, oh, well, if you're off your line, you know, you don't want to be backtracking as a goalkeeper when you're facing a one-on-one, you want to be coming out with a presence. And yes, obviously you do. But I think when we have the ball that high and there's all that space there, that gives you enough time to adjust in those areas. So that's kind of why this goal is interesting because there's one egregious error that's obvious. And then there's one maybe error, which I kind of think is on the coaching staff and is a bit less obvious so there's maybe more to this goal than it seems just oh awful pass columbus yeah. go one nil up changes the game let me let me get in here because i i do think we we've discussed this before about the fact that this is the difference between an error and a place where improvement can be found if we look back at the the five and five system that you know we've been talking about in this one of the ways that the best teams in the world utilize this five and five system or or utilize a, a four in the back and or a four up front is they they bring that keeper in and make him another man. Right. They have the ability to play through a press because of a keeper's ability to play high off his line and be essentially another outfield player who kind of has the easier job. I don't think Colleen is ever going to be that guy. I'll come right out and say it. I don't think Kalina is going to be the guy who comes in and becomes the sixth piece of the five-man unit. I don't see that in his game. I don't see the long distribution that's reliable enough from him. I do see him learning it. I see him working on it. If you watch him in practice, he is actively there practicing those long diagonal balls out to the wingers. And I like to see that. I like seeing that improvement in his game. But I don't think he's ever going to be the guy who really efficiently links up with that back five and takes that sort of weakened back five system and makes it a stronger six to play through pressure. I don't think Kalina's is that guy. I do think he's a phenomenal shot stopper. And I guess that sort of comes down to a question of if you're Christian Latanzio, is Kalina your guy? And you're saying, Hey, we're still going to play the system knowing that it has a, from the very base of it, it has an amazing shot stopper, but not necessarily the guy who can help build up. There are there are a lot of very famous keepers in the world who've done very well by doing this. Or is the question, do you believe that Christian Kalina can become this? I mean, I think I've said my answer. I don't necessarily know that he can. Or is the question, is Christian Kalina the right guy for the long-term future of this club? I think for the short term, I have no qualms about Christian Kalina. I am a fan of his play for the most part. And while I, I understand where you're coming from on this, I do feel like you're asking a keeper who, when was it he got burned by an over-the-top ball because he was too high up? It was at um, the bank. Yeah, the, the, the goal the like, from the free kick, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think that happened with about five games to go last season. It was late on in the season. Yeah. The, this is a guy who, in recent history, has been burned by getting a little too far out of his net. Maybe maybe this is something he picks up. 
But I do think we're now asking him to reach the, hey, you're a, you are the guy in MLS. You're one of the best, if not the best keepers, if he develops this skill. And I'd love to see it. I don't necessarily know whether we're going to see that in the short term. I mean, do you think he could develop that in inside of the next year, year and a half? Um, probably, probably not. <laughs> I don't think I, I, the thing, the thing is with this is that I think that there is some stuff that probably can't be developed um, in terms of actually on the ball stuff. I mean, we're talking about a, thir- uh, a 30 year old goalkeeper, which, you know, pretty, pretty young for a goalkeeper, you know, pretty, pretty kind of middle of his prime, but at the same time, reflects of someone who has been in the game for a long time playing the way he has for a long time so still quite hard to kind of teach new stuff and and break out of habits especially to someone who's had the success that he's had in the game um it's hard to kind of reteach that stuff my thing with this is i don't expect him to ever be this great distribute uh this this great kind of on ball goalkeeper who can pick out passes and play these perfectly pinged 30 35 yard balls to the uh to the wide players kind of get out of pressing traps etc etc the thing that i have the issue with and i don't even think that this is something that necessarily needs to be teached as a skill it just needs to be instructed from a tactical perspective is just kind of you know just please stand higher up your line when build-up is high up the field and and offering those kind of situations like this one. I don't need you to then, when you get the ball, you know, sell a dummy to a, a oncoming forward and play a 20-yard perfect pass. I just need you to kind of bail us out of those situations a little bit and offer, and then when they get the ball, be there if it's a bad touch or an overhit pass to sweep it up because... Um, We've had instances of this before. We conceded a goal away at, at the Philadelphia Union uh, last season, which wasn't a perfect... It, it, in fact, it, it wasn't really... It wasn't anything like this goal, but it was a ball over the top, which by the time it, the player gets to the ball, it's in our box, and it's come from inside Philadelphia Union's half, and Kalina is kind of backtracking into his goal because he's not started that high up, and he's kind of in two minds about it, and that ends in a goal. And again, not something that Kalina would obviously be bl- uh, blamed for, but something that the coaching staff needs to instruct him to stand up higher and deal with those things. And I almost think of it pr- from the perspective of we like to press high. And when you're a high pressing team, what you then need to do is you have to play a high line as a defensive unit because you need everything to merge. You need to play with this compactness because if they play through your press and you're then playing quite a deep line, you're just giving them 60 yards, 50 yards of space. That's not going to work. You need the whole 11 needs to be working together towards one tactical idea. If you're playing a high press, the defensive line needs to come up and the midfield needs to come up with them. So in this case, in those moments when the defensive line is playing up, when the other team has the ball, we need a goalkeeper who's going to stand further out and cover that space as well. And then in this situation, if we want to play high possession football with them camped in, uh, with the opposition camped in their half, we need a goalkeeper who's going to stand further up to act as an option when situations like this happen, when there's a bit of pressure on a centre half who's not so comfortable on the ball. So okay, that's my I'm, thing. I'm, I'm going to get in here because I think we're starting to beat this one down into the ground. 
Yeah, we are. We are. We are. But just um, just, just, to, just, to, just to kind of make one point on it, sorry, and it'll be quick. I don't think Kalina will ever be a great on-the-ball goalkeeper. I think that it isn't too much to ask of our coaching staff to say, can you play further out and deal with those simple situations? That's my simple um, kind of assessment yeah. of this. I think we, we've got a circle on that one. What we haven't actually done is talked about the guy that I intended to talk about, and that's Bill Tuiloma. We mentioned him briefly that this is another mistake from him. And you and I have sort of a question for you here, and this one is going to have to be super fast. And that is, is Bill Tuiloma the guy? Is Bill Tuiloma capable of, at this level, maintaining what is required to be a starting or sort of first guy off the bench center or center back center back for an MLS team. He is kind of what we would call an all rounder. He's not particularly fast. He doesn't have particularly good passing. He is not overwhelmingly strong in the air. He's okay in the air. He has decent passing. He is got okay speed. You know, he, he covers and communicates with his teammates. Okay but he's kind of a generalist when it comes to being a defender. He doesn't really do anything super well in a way that you say, not worried at all, Bill Tuilomas there. And now we're starting to see consistent records of, like you said, once every three games, he's got a giveaway in him, right? Yep. For me, and this is one of the hard things to do as media is – you know, we come onto this podcast and we have to look at players and really try and be objective, right? I don't know that Bill Tuiloma is going to make it. A- am I am I driving a nail into somebody who doesn't deserve it? Um, I, I, if if he's if he's a first choice starter in uh, in an MLS side, I, I don't think that team's onto anything brilliant. Um, yeah. I think if you're going from a squad building perspective, uh, how many centre backs do you want? Ideally, I think in an ideal world, uh, world from a squad building perspective, you want five centre backs in your squad, four proper first team centre backs, and then maybe a centre back who is you know a, a youngster who you're betting on coming up through the uh, coming up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Tuiloma is fine as the fourth centre back who you hope the youngster kind of graduates over yeah. and becomes that guy. So I, I, like you say, there's a, there's, there's a lot about it. Uh, uh, there's a lot about his game, which is just kind of, you know, fine. You, you're willing to kind of go with it. You know, there's a, you know, decent pace, decent enough, at, at, you know, kind of in jewels. He's like you say, not the tallest, but he is a fairly good athlete. So you see him kind of leap up to win headers. He's, he's decent at that. I'm perfectly fine with him being in Charlotte's squad as a squad option. Um, but it's like you say, he's not someone who you can be dependent on as yeah. a starter because you get moments like this a little bit too often. But clearly a capable centre-back. Um, he's a uh, he's a 30-timed, roughly, I think, about 30-timed captain international, a lot of experience. Worthwhile guy to have in the squad. Played... Uh, Played in lots of different areas around the uh, the world of football. Definitely someone who is worth having in the squad for his ability and his uh, his experience. But someone who, if he is starting in your team, you're going to have too many moments like this to, you know, be yeah, he's, successful. 
I think my statement here is he's starting to get harder and harder to defend. And yeah, that's one of those things that when you are literally a defender, we want we want you to we want to be able to defend you. Yeah, he's making so, it hard for us to defend on the pitch <laughs> and uh, the fans to defend him. I'm going to move on. And this whole time I've sort of been talking about five and five. And while that does make sense from a footballing theory perspective, you know, having that that bank of five where the fullbacks invert or you have one midfielder that stays back and a fullback inverts and then you have an attacking five. And then you sort of end up with a box midfield. You end up with four in the midfield. You fill your five lanes of attack. You theoretically fill your five lanes of defense. You create two structures that should be able to make lots of interchange and connection and should be able to sort of morph and flow with the game pretty well. That can also, like we discussed, drop back and link up with their keeper to sort of bring an extra man into the play. There's nothing wrong with the theory of this. But I think what we saw at Columbus is that there is a very high level of challenge in the execution of this. And it's really easy when you are playing like this for your lines to separate. It's really easy for you to look up and suddenly there's 20 yards between you and your next line. And we saw it a lot against Columbus. And Columbus made a lot of work out of it. Columbus really did a good job of using their speed. And I hate to be the one to break it to uh, the Charlotte FC fans. Harrison Awful, not a super fast guy. I will say, again, still very impressed with the kip up the other day. Well done, Harrison <laughs> Awful. Uh, Harrison Awful, not a super fast guy. Bill Tuiloma, not a super fast guy. To some extent, Ashley Westwood, not a crazy fast guy. Justin Merrim, not a crazy fast guy. Uh, look across the pitch. I think that you can say that Adilson Milanda, when he's healthy, is reasonably fast, but he's not a lightning bolt. And then you've got uh, Nathan Byrne, an elder statesman of the game who is not overwhelmingly fast. I am worried that in that defensive unit, we're starting to see some of the players who are maybe not so willing to go forward because they know the space coming back is going to be hard to hard to cover. And then we're leaving a gap in that midfield. And instead of our midfield being a connected box four, we're starting to see a just separation, a gulf, where instead of it being 10 people covering two jobs, where they're each operating in fives, it's becoming a genuine five and five. And they can just hit the ball over our press. They can just knock it long into a space in the middle of the field where really fast people can just go to town on some very skilled defenders, but people who are having to cover large amounts of space because of the system they're set up in. I'm a little bit worried that Columbus might just have found some of the equation required to beat Charlotte FC. And I think that Derek Jones, his presence when he comes in, I think stabilizes us. But I think Derek Jones can only cover so much. I'm starting to be worried about that, that speed down the wings and what happens when we do play a team that can go down the wings and just really cause havoc. Thoughts on this, Ewan? Yeah, it's, I mean, this 
became a real issue <laughs> in this game. It, it particularly kind of shows in the um, in the second goal. You mentioned there the idea that this structure can bring you problems by the other team just playing it simple, playing a ball over the top, attacking that space and, and giving you real issues in the same way that we gave Columbus issues in the reverse uh, fixture. It's the way that we scored our goal, just, you know, the simplicity of playing a ball into the space that you vacate and taking advantage of it. There's also the added idea that, you know, what do, what do most formations sound like? 442, 4231, whatever you want to come up with. None of them none of them have two banks like you're describing a five five to sound like, which is what it looks like very often. And what would you say to a team when you're playing against a team that can often get into that situation where there's five dedicated attackers and five dedicated defenders? That's gonna open up a lot of space in the middle. <laughs> and if you kind of just you know, if you disregard your position as a forward and just say, I'm going to exist in between these two lines on a counter where that where that disorganisation can be taken advantage of uh, most easily, I'll be able to have a lot of space going forward. And uh, Christian uh, Christian Ramirez picks up the ball here, coming into our third for this second goal in so much space, and it's an indictment on the system and how it looks without Derek Jones, like you say. And to go a little kind of big picture on this, but also. It's relevant because we've got a, a summer transfer window kind of coming re- uh, soon. Brant Bronico's role has changed um, this season from what it was before. Um, mm-hmm. He's obviously playing further up the field. His uh, his tendencies have changed because that's that's what he's been coached to do. That's the instructions that are given to him. Combined with the fact that his uh, his profile is quite different to that of Derek Jones's, they're built very differently as players. I wonder if they were banking on Derek Jones will be our holding midfielder. And then if he gets injured, suspended, needs a rest, whatever it may be, we have Brent Bronico, who was playing the sixth role last season, did it great. He can come into that role whenever Derek Jones needs a rest for, or like I say, suspension, injury, whatever it may be. Different roles. The sixth position remains the same, but the tactics have changed. They're different roles. They have different requirements. And I'm wondering if it would be worth recruiting a proper Derek Jones understudy, a proper matching profile for this team to play that role when he is unavailable. Or maybe even have the idea of of spending a little bit of money signing a Derek Jones profile who maybe has a little bit more on the ball or, or something like that. Because when we play with this style that you that you speak about there, it's so important that Derek Jones knits it together. You need such a specific profile that he has to knit it together, to be able to cover those spaces, to understand his responsibility to a T, to get restarts and stop those transitions on counter presses, et cetera, et cetera. So good at all of them. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just a case of, oh, Brant Bronico has played the six before. He can play there when Jones isn't available. It's not that simple. And it was proved in this game. And I wonder if this maybe sent the alarm bells off. We need to recruit a really specific player to be the understudy when Derek Jones isn't available. Because if they try Westwood there, Westwood's brilliant, highest technical floor of any of our centre midfielders. He won't be able to perform that role in the way that Derek Jones does. He 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 doesn't. He's not that profile. You want him further up the field. You you don't want him doing the things that that Derek Jones does, and he wouldn't be able to do some of them because he just doesn't have the physical level of Derek Jones. So I wonder if that's something that really does need to be considered if they are wedded to the system 
because that six position is so important to it yep. and it needs to have a proper profile to be playing in there and you can't just depend on the one guy as for as dependable as he has been this season it's so, it's unfair to to be as dependent as we have been on him yeah so i also and this is one of the places where i look around him right and i think that adilson melanda has a, a bright future ahead of him i think he's a really good defender and i think he's learning how to go from being a good defender to just a a nailed on starter in the mls i think that that's his next step I think he's already got the position. Now it's how do I master this for him? But beyond that, what's around that area is experience. Not killers, right? And I think that in a back line, especially in a back line that plays high, you can get away with one experience guy. We have three. Four, depending on how you want to you wanna count it, right? I, I do begin to wonder... Where if you don't have someone, like if you put Brant Bronico in that role, are you setting Brant up to fail just because he doesn't have the exact same superpower as Derek Jones, right? If he's just very good at this, if he's MLS level good at sitting into that back line and stepping forward, because we've seen him do that effectively. If he's just MLS level good and not superpower good, are the tools around him to still make the system work. And where I'm leaning is right now, no. Where I'm leaning is I'm seeing too much experience in our back line and not enough killers, not enough speed. And I think that we know left back is an issue. I think that Harrison Awful came in with some expectation that he may be expected to play some, but that he was going to start working on being a part of Charlotte FC's staff. And Harrison Awful has needed to be a, a critical player for this team. I think that Nathan Byrne was brought in, and when he is in a holding position where he's got guys around him and they are set up, he is really good at holding his hole. Once you get him in open space, we have not seen him succeed. He doesn't have the tools. He does not have the speed. He's got the guile. He's got the ability to cover people. He's got the game knowledge. How many times have we seen Nathan Byrne without that speed, still be the guy who sees the play develop and cuts out danger. Hundreds, right? But it's still such a big space for him to cover. He doesn't have the tools required for that system. And so part of me thinks, like you said, maybe we need to go and look for another superpower, Derek Jones. And a part of me thinks maybe we need to look across that back line and say, who is here that can add more tools to take pressure off when we don't have a superpower. What can we teach these guys? What tools can we give them? And if they're not the right guys, or is there anyone else out there that we can go and bring in that that does have the the skill set, the tools to to make the system work? Again, if we're wedded to all of it, we're way down deep in the weeds here. Uh, real quick, I, I think that we see another example of the lines breaking when uh, they score their fourth we have just had the momentum come back to us and we get the opportunity to go forward and try and and tie up the game three three and we send another player forward and the line split and you can see it in the fourth goal they go they go fast they have lots of space in in our side they go down the side they attack us they pull the ball to the top of the box they make it count there's too much space 
there's too much space and they take advantage. And that's just how it is in professional leagues. If you leave that much space and that much time, people are going to kill you. But I think that that goal was an element of us going to try and push to tie, not necessarily a, a great lapse in concentration or a great failing of the system. Uh, is there anything really quick you want to say on that final goal before we move on? Yeah, I think um, it's just it's it's really bad. <laughs> it's a re- it's a really really bad goal to concede because it's not just the fact that the space there's so much space um, for Columbus to play through, and it's fairly easily played through. Like it's not that there's space there, and they're hitting a ball over the top and just kind of chasing after it. You know, they they play through it with ease. The, the whole idea of our team is that we're supposed to have a high like well the the, the idea of our team, but also the idea of um, playing the system that we do is that you're meant to make it difficult for teams to play through you like that, and then the ball over the top is the the kind of easy out, but you kind of pit the opposition's tendencies against them a lot of the time because they want to play through. They're not trained to play long ball football, but they have to do it because it's the optimum way to to play against that system. This goal, they play through us too easily, and then the organization once they're past the press is awful because. Once you get to, they didn't get exactly to the byline, but once you get kind of deep um, into those areas where the cutback is available, you can't just sort of line up a few yards away from your goalkeeper because the cutbacks are going to be easily there. So that organization was awful as well. And it's something that should be worked on when you play a high line. You should be training that recovery stuff and training the positioning of where you need to be as a defender in those situations. So that goal is like a real, real indictment of the system. Like all, like we've been through the goals in this game that we concede, and each one of them is a little bit of an indictment on the system, the way we set up. This one, I think, is the worst because it's the goal which should happen the least out of all of the goals, in my opinion. Even though the first goal is such a massive error, error by Tuiloma, this one it just shows how flawed this setup can be tactically. And that we don't really have, or it doesn't seem like there's built-in solutions to it at all. Like, this is the worrying goal. I think for me, what it shows is that the system we're playing is very complex. And if it is not done right in every position, it falls apart. And we see this, I'm going to liken this to a Formula One car, right? A Formula One car is an incredible piece of engineering. They are truly remarkable things that achieve remarkable results. If you build a Formula One car's parts out of the wrong density of material, they explode. It, it's not a failure of, oh, the car doesn't go as fast. It's a failure of epic. You know, it, it is catastrophic failure is probably the right way to say it. And when you are playing a system this highly tuned, when you are playing a system that pushes this high up the field, when you are playing a system that that Christian Latanzio seems to want to play, if all of the pieces are not functioning together, there are serious, serious danger points. And I think this is a very clear uh, position where we get to see those danger points. Not just see them exploited, but see how little ability there is to recover from them when things do go wrong. Um, I'm going to leave that one there. And I think that you and we have made the people wait long enough. Should we, should we take some time and, and talk about the little guy named Lionel Messi, who is coming to Miami? 
yeah, the guy who, um, I mean, there's a chance he might, this is a feel-good story for a lot of people. It might be the guy who stops us making the playoffs in the Eastern <laughs> Conference, which is the flip side of this. But yeah, I'm, I'm willing to be quite uh, happy about this for now until it gets to that point. Um, when, it, when it gets to that point, we're all going to be really upset and we're all going to, you know, yeah. be be very angry at it. But the truth is, this is historic for the MLS. The truth is, Lionel Messi, you can argue all you want that Cristiano Ronaldo, you can argue all you want, yada, yada, yada. Lionel Messi, if not the greatest player of all time, is solidly in the argument for greatest player of all time. This guy is a killer. On the field, he is capable of things that boggle the mind. If you do not regularly watch Lionel Messi play at any age, Lionel Messi is the type of guy who will sort of slow down and walk on the field. And there will be a moment right before he rips your throat out where you go, Maybe Lionel's not on it today. Maybe maybe Messi's not. Maybe today's just not his day. You know, he's sort of ambling around. He's he doesn't hasn't really shown any threat. And then he scores two goals in the back of your net, and you're dead. And it the ability for him to break the game down, the ability for him to exploit space, the ability for him to muscle people off the ball, the ability for him to finish goals, the ability for him to work with his teammates and set the ball up, his touch his understanding of space, everything about this man is genuinely different. And I am, for one, super excited that not just Charlotte, not just Miami, that every single team and every single stadium in the United States that he goes to is going to get the chance to see this man play. Because what is going to happen, from my perspective, is defenders are going to get murdered by Messi. Defenders are going to get destroyed. And suddenly teams are going to go, look, we have to be better. Right? We're not getting we're not getting beaten by luck. We're not getting beaten by teams that just scraped something out against us. There is a difference between what that man can do and what we can defend. And it's going to force the whole league to get better. And I love that. I think Lionel Messi despite the fact that there's probably some stuff we should talk about where, you know, exactly how he comes to the league has a lot of backroom dealings in it. I think that him coming to this league is going to put the national attention on the league. Everyone in America is going to want to watch Lionel Messi. Eyes are going to this game. Kids' eyes are going to this game. Adults' coaches' eyes are going to this game. Eyes from across the world are going to this game. Players who otherwise might not have considered going to the MLS will consider going to the MLS because it means they get to play with or against Lionel Messi. This is a a singular man who is actually capable of rising a tide that lifts all boats. And for the MLS, I am excited. Ewan, thoughts on this? Yeah, I think... um... It, it almost it almost commands kind of a hysterical uh, hyster- historical look MLS in terms of is this the biggest thing that's <laughs> that's ever happened to the league and I I feel like it is and it's I don't know if it I don't know how close you think it is I know David Beckham joining was like a massive massive deal um, but this feels like something way above that this is a situation where obviously Lionel Messi won the World Cup with Argentina a few months ago. It's made him the favourite to win the Ballon d'Or. 
the guy who wins the Ballon d'Or might be an active MLS player. That that that's huge. Yep. That that would be huge for the league. And like you say, the idea of people going to see him, you you already see it with um with the Charlotte FC tickets, the rising in prices. It might oh, not man. be the yeah, it might not be the easiest thing to do to go and watch Leo Messi play in terms of the finances of it. But if it is within your kind of, you know, budget, whatever it may be, or I'd even say it's something that's worth kind of putting money away to be able to say that you've done. Because I haven't seen him play live and I live in England and I've had opportunities and it hasn't felt right and it might end up being one of the biggest regrets I have. So if you are in a position to be able to go watch him live, like like Logan says, it's going to be such an experience to watch him play in these in these games. Because the thing is, he's not the best version of himself, but he's probably still kind of... I don't know what I don't know whether to say he's in his prime, but he's still in contention to be one of the best players in the world right now. In my opinion, he's the greatest player of all time. But even now, you could say he is the best player active in the world still, and it's going to be fascinating in terms of the attention it brings. It's going to be fascinating in terms of how teams look to defend him. If it's just going to be this all-out double man marking, we'll live with whoever else. <laughs> Anyone else can do whatever the hell they want to do. We're just not going to let him, um, you know, do whatever it's, he wants against us. It's going to be um, quadruple man marking. It's going to be a, it's going to be two people on him with two people <laughs> sitting there waiting for the way he bursts away from those two people. I, I genuinely, <laughs> I'm excited to see what people have to try and do. Exactly, because the thing is, is this is obviously going to this is obviously a huge deal. We're we're talking about it now. Everyone's talking about it now. How big a deal this is going to be? But he's going to come to uh, he's going to come to MLS, and he's going to be playing up against teams with players who are very prideful and committed professionals. Who, even though Lionel Messi is the one percent of the one percent of the one percent recurring, 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 MLS players are still the one percent of the one percent of the one percent in terms of making it as professional footballers. And they'll be competitors. They'll be prideful. They will look at that game against Messi as this is the opportunity for us to, you know, put a stamp as who we are as a team, and as a, you know, as a centre back, as a holding midfielder, whatever it may be. So there's going to be a there's there's going to be a fascination in these games, in terms of the teams playing against them and playing up to Messi's level, hopefully. Not in terms of being as good as Messi, of course, but they will up their game for that occasion because they know that the eyes will be on them because Messi is playing and they want to match the occasion. It's going to just... It's going to bring so much good. And yeah, I know you mentioned that the way this deal has come about, maybe that makes it a little bit murky, the idea that this has come about with maybe some uh, some under-the-table dealings, this and that. But it's like with most things in football, and as we see with the kind of golf stuff this week, it's like with most stuff in sport. You you kind of have to, or you can make the decision to take that in and, and, and walk away from certain things, or you can kind of decide that it's ugly, but at the end of the day, the players are the players. They are technically the workers, and we're going to you know, continue to support them. And Lionel Messi is the best of the best. And no matter what kind of that off the field stuff is him coming to MLS is going to do so much good 
and I am very, very excited to see it, even though, like I mentioned, there is a chance that it has detrimental effects on Charlotte FC's prospects. <laughs> so I, I think one thing that we're going to have to to look at is that this could, and this might be something we say for a little podcast, this could re, we could need a reevaluation of the MLS. In three years because of this, the MLS could be as big as any of the other leagues in the world, probably barring the Premier League. Maybe the Bundesliga is outside of that that league too. But, you know, there could be a time that what this kicks off, you know, seeing a, a player like this come in, other players want to play him, other people want to raise their game, this league could potentially be in the same breath as Liga. Right? This league could be in the same uh, breath as, well, I think it probably is as the Eredivisie, but uh, the Italian league, which is now escaping me. Um, Syria. Syria. Yeah. It, this this league could be in that same division, right, of world football. And what that is going to do for the MLS, for the supporters here, for the people who want to play here, and even for the national team. There's a whole generation of kids that are going to get into this game in the United States of America because they watched Lionel Messi when they were five. And in five more years, guess where they're going to be? They're going to be in training programs for the next uh, United States men's national team and women's team. I mean, it's, it, this, does, this is so big. It does not just extend yeah. to the men's game, the women's teams, I mean, which already have incredible characters and incredible stories. I mean, the United States is one of the best women's teams to ever exist. The reach of this could ripple out into things we cannot yet imagine. And I hope that when Lionel Messi comes in, he is the guy who doesn't say, hey, I'm here for my final paycheck and I'll play. I, I hope he's the guy who wants to come here and help others grow. I hope he's the guy who wants to come here and leave a legacy, not just as a player, but as a human being. Because if he does that, really, we could see some special stuff. Final thoughts on this one, you and we have gone more than an hour now, so <laughs> uh, we will start to wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. I'll just say two things. Obviously, you mentioned there the off-field, uh, the kind of dealings and the way this came about. I do think it's worth kind of reading up on that because there is some interesting stuff there. And I would also kind of encourage anyone to kind of read up on general understanding of, of off-field stuff in football and kind of, and get as much understanding of that as possible because it's important and a lot of it isn't that great. And even though we'd rather ignore it, it's, it's kind of important to know about with some of this stuff uh, in a general sense. And then the other thing I'd say is, you say there with the kind of three years of uh, MLS getting to the standard of other certain leagues um, in Europe, uh, other than the Premier League, I do think, and, and I probably know, I'll know less about this than people who are actually in the United States, but I think this will have more of an impact down the road in the way that, like you say, this will hopefully encourage younger athletes to pick up the game. I think the effects of this could be seen maybe 10, 15 years in a major way. I think it almost goes hand in hand with the fact that I believe the uh, US men's national team, the under 20s team, I think they made the World Cup quarterfinals in the under 20s World Cup, which is a, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong achievement. And it almost goes hand in hand with the fact that I think something is bubbling under the surface with football or soccer in the, in the United States. I think something is coming and this might be 
the thing that you know it was already on the rise this might be the thing that makes it really pop in a big way and it might not be something that we see for another 10 15 years potentially but i i do think there's a good chance that it's coming and i might be wrong because i don't live in the states and i don't have the kind of you know day-to-day feeling of that but i do get the vibe and from the production of the youth teams i do get the feeling that there is something pretty big coming and i think this isn't going to be the catalyst of it it's already in motion but this could be the thing that really brings it to another level for young people deciding to pick up the game yeah we are going to go ahead and wrap it up there we have big news uh we have big news if you have not heard the interview with ben bender we got to sit down and talk to ben bender and again, anyone who's a regular listener of the show will know that I was giddy. Uh, very much enjoyed doing that. You can go listen to that, and you can win some cool stuff signed by Ben Bender. Uh, we have a, a 2020 minted hat signed by Ben Bender in gold Sharpie. And we have a cool little MLS miniature ball that has also been signed by Ben Bender. We are giving away both of them for free. All you have to do is go to our Instagram. Uh, You can find the Instagram at the underscore crown underscore cast. Find the post where we're giving it away. Like the post. Make sure you're following Crowncast and tag some people in a comment, and you will be automatically entered to win one of the two. We hope that we get to give these away soon. What we're probably going to do is announce the winners at the end of next week, and that way we have some fun stuff to do once there's a little bit more calm in the entire situation and we've gotten away from playing every three days uh as ever if you have decided to spend your time with us we love you uh you can find us on instagram again at the underscore crown underscore underscore cast where you can go enter that giveaway you can find us on twitter at the underscore crown cast and you can find us online at crowncast.net where you can see all the amazing stuff that josh and you and do about this team and that's it we will talk to you again after we go take our next three points at home against Seattle. Goodbye. Queen City Podcast Network.com.